Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we will stop in Toronto to speak with Sean Woodley of Locked On Raptors about Toronto with their 3-1 lead in the NBA Finals, closing in on their first ever NBA championship. We'll also go to Atlanta to speak with Brad Rowland and to Brooklyn to speak with Josh Bass of Locked On Hawks and Locked On Nets, respectively, as they discuss the trade that occurred a few days ago between those two teams and what it means for these teams' summer aspirations and the directions they are both moving and the path they are making to get there. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Alright guys, we're back for another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. The NBA Finals are wrapping up. The NBA Draft is less than two weeks away, so we've got lots to talk about. So, let's get to it. Now it's time to bring in the host of the Locked On Raptors podcast. Also, I believe, moonlighting as Fred Van Vliet's dentist. Sean Woodley is here to talk about this Toronto Raptors team who is one game away from their first NBA championship. Sean, first of all, uh, how, are the, how are the nerves feeling in, uh, in, um, in advance of uh, Monday's Game 5? Bizarrely calm. It's weird, but I think like the journey of this run through the playoffs for the Raptors has been so... Like, there have been so many moments where the nerves were, like, understandably completely frayed, and the Raptors have kind of persevered and powered through every single one of those. You know, whether it's down 2-1 to the Sixers, Game 7 against the Sixers, down 0-2 to Milwaukee, late in that uh, third quarter against Milwaukee. Like, there just have been so many times where it felt like the Raptors were kind of on their heels, and they just seemed to be able to pull it out, and it's like... It's so different than what Raptors fans are used to, and it's bizarre, and I don't think people are totally used to it yet, but all of that has kind of led to a calm here ahead of Game 5, and maybe it's like a misguided calm. Maybe the Warriors are going to come out, and Kevin Durant's going to play, and they're going to go and rattle off a a big Game 5 win and really put some pressure on the Raptors to get this thing done in Game 6 before uh, Game 7, but like... It just feels like this team is almost like a team of destiny at this point, and everything they've done to this point has kind of given, uh, I think, a lot of Raptors fans confidence that tomorrow is going to be the last day of the season, and it's ridiculous to think that. It's crazy considering like all this team has gone through over the last however, however many years, but having Kawhi Leonard is a hell of a drug, man, and it kind of changes the way you see the world. Obviously, Kawhi was fantastic in Game 4, 36-12 and 12 in his 41 minutes, four steals as well. He, he wasn't that great in the first couple of games. He was fine, but he wasn't like dominating, but he absolutely dominated Game 4. There's been contributions right across the board. But I do want to talk about something you just mentioned, and that is the potential return of Kevin Durant being upgraded for question, to questionable for Game 5 after missing the last, last month with his Grade 2 calf strain. He's probably coming back, to be honest, a normal recovery from a calf strain like that Grade 2 is about uh, six weeks, so he'd potentially coming back a little bit in advance of... Um, of where he could be, it's almost impossible to expect that he'll be anywhere close to 100%, especially given so many negative reports about how the practices have gone. This return for him is obviously changing the betting lines with the Warriors who were three and a half point underdogs. That's coming in. I think it'll continue to come in when we hear more confirmation on Durant. Is there any, I guess, if Durant comes back, he plays well, he looks fine, and the the Warriors win game five, would there be 
panic setting in or do you think that the way that this Raptors team has performed with the you know professionalism the experience of guys like you know Kawhi also Marcus Sol you know Serge Ibaka these guys who have been in big moments through long periods of their career will they be able to hold them in good stead yeah I think they'll be okay like if you ask me if they can beat the the Warriors with Kevin Durant with an injured Kevon Looney and a you know not 100% Andre Iguodala and Clay Thompson, like one out of three times, I would say probably yeah. Obviously, with it being the finals and with there being like the poetic aspect of it, with the Warriors having been the only team to ever blow a three-one lead, like if they were given sort of the the runway to come back from a three-one deficit, then I think you know there's some like cosmic power behind that almost. But like I think this Raptors team, like they are not messing around. They were they were like off the floor after game four, like deadpan, like not getting into it at all. And just like, they know what's, what's up. And I think, you know, assuming Kevin Durant plays, I don't, how, I don't, like, how do you expect him to be a hundred percent? As you mentioned, like he might be coming back early from what the initial, initial sort of prognosis of the injury was. He has not really been with the team at all, like, like playing or practicing until today. And it just feels like whatever version of Kevin Durant you're going to get, not only is he not going to be 100%, but also it changes the dynamic of the team and how they've played for the last little while. So I just don't think that's an adjustment that's going to be made over 48 minutes in an elimination game. That feels like a pretty tall order for even the Warriors to sort of rise up to. But uh, yeah, I think the Raptors are good enough, even if Kevin Durant does play and, and you know powers them to a win in Game 5. Like I would feel pretty good about the Raptors, at least their chances. Like The worst case they have is a Game 7 at home, which... As we've kind of learned, you know, Game 7 at home is typically where you want to be, right? What is it, like 80% of teams win Game 7 at home? I know the Warriors are a different beast, but this Raptors team is also no slouch. And so I, I feel pretty confident that they'll get it done at one point over these next three games. What game it is, if KD comes back, I guess becomes a bit of a question. But I would still put my money on Game 5 because of the adjustment factor that just like... It feels like a lot to ask for the Warriors in a game where their season is on the line just to be like, yeah, okay, KD, get in there, and now you guys are totally back to normal. That feels like kind of unrealistic. It is going to be really interesting to watch. One guy I do want to talk about here before I let you go, Sean, is the player Fred Van Vliet. I had you on a couple of weeks ago, and we're talking about just how badly he'd struggled throughout the playoffs. But he has been a revelation in this series, you know, especially defensively with his play on Steph Curry. The shots, which were coming in at about... 90% at one point. That, that, that's cooled off a bit, but he has been a, a really key part here. This sort of defensive presence, though, that Van Vliet has provided, is that something that you or any other Raptors people you know, saw coming from that, in, or to at least this level of impact? Yeah, maybe you don't expect like he's going to bother Steph Curry to the extent he has in the finals, but like he's always been a very good defender, uh, especially for his size at five eleven or whatever he is. Like he's always been really, really rugged. He's always kind of had that Kyle Lowryness to his defense, where you can't really move him off his spot if you want to post him up. Like good luck, and like he's just such a like annoyance. He's always around. He's always sort of on you when you're running around off the ball. Very few guys have ever been able to stick with Steph Curry when he's scurrying around running like two miles per every offense possession. But, you know, like Fred Van Vliet's been able to do it. And I think just like the way he's played has just sort of there's a lot less pressure on everyone else on the roster, right? Like, it's not Kyle Lowry with the only sort of burden of guarding Steph Curry. D Danny Green doesn't have to be as sort of reliable as maybe you'd hope he would be because Kevin, Fred VanVleet can come in and play 38 minutes and, and take a, take some of those minutes of the two guard. Uh, he's just, you know, Norm Powell isn't such a necessity anymore. You just have Fred VanVleet, you can throw him out for 38 minutes, and he's just going to be 
steady across the board. Like he's called steady Freddie for a reason. Like he's just so reliable when he's playing this way. You know exactly what's going to come. And the, obviously the big shots have helped too, but the defense has really been the main thing with him. And also just like smartly running pick and rolls. And I think he's been really sort of at ease in this series compared to where he's been in the last couple series, especially the Philly series where he was the smallest guy on the floor by far. And he was just like, there was no space, no room for him to operate. This series against the Warriors, I mean, the Warriors are the worst defense the Raptors have played maybe in the entire playoffs. Like, the Magic were a really good half-court defense. The Warriors just aren't at that level right now. Obviously, their their peak is just as good as any of the teams they've played. But on the whole, they're, they're the worst defense they've played so far, I think. And that's just given a lot more sort of room to operate for Fred Van Vliet and the rest of them. But yeah, it, it's it's been a revelation. It's maybe saved the season, Fred Van Vliet becoming what he's become over the last couple of weeks here. It has really been amazing. And uh, the great Game 5 is going to be a fantastic spectacle, especially if Toronto win in Toronto. It's uh, history-making stuff. Sean, you'll have everything covered on Locked On Raptors for whatever the aftermath is of Game 5. And then, of course, Game 6 and Game 7, if they are needed. Thank you for coming on the show and go and enjoy your 12 Red Delicious Apples. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, Locked On NBA, by downloading the Himalaya podcast app. It's free. It's super easy to use. Every single podcast you love or you're going to love in the future is available. They have personally curated playlists made just for you by their expert podcast tastemakers. You can follow your favorite shows and creators. You can give individual likes and comments on individual episodes. So go and download the Himalaya podcast app. And while you're there, don't forget to follow Locked On NBA and subscribe. Let's go to Atlanta now to speak with Brad Rowland, the host of the Locked on Hawks podcast, the Atlanta Hawks executing a trade which can't be actually executed for another month now with the Brooklyn Nets that uh, does change a little bit of the landscape of things around the NBA. They are, they acquiring, uh, they acquired Alan Crabb as well as the number 17 pick in the 2019 draft, a 2020 lottery protected first rounder. And then they sent out Torian Prince and a 2021 second round pick to those Brooklyn Nets. This changes things up for Atlanta, Brad, in that um, Torian Prince, a guy that at the beginning of last season, you would have thought that he was a guy that they would look at as not necessarily a part of the core, but a guy that had ended the 2016, uh, sorry, 2017-18 season really strongly and then fell out of favor. What does this mean for the uh, the the identity or the direction this Hawks team is coming that they're really just you know, trying to aggressively attack a rebuild market when there are, a lot of other teams are, are sort of moving away from that. Yeah, I think it's uh, it wasn't a huge surprise necessarily because he was not drafted by this regime and uh, Prince has been someone who's been sort of maddening locally. Uh, he was he's certainly a guy with a lot of talent, a great shooter, for instance, but wasn't a great fit necessarily and uh, I think I've been on, on the trade market for quite some time now but go, going in the way that, that, that they did here choosing to prioritize the future adding another draft pick when they already had a bunch of draft picks is interesting to say the least so I think them going in that way is, is smart they wanted to go to this full-scale rebuild a couple of years ago and they instead of starting to speed up and uh, they've, they've elected to keep things on the tracks and honestly it's a, tempt- it's a temptation that a lot of teams fall into when they start seeing some growth to kind of speed things up in the time Line and the Hawks are taking this really cautious approach that honestly makes a lot of sense. They had three first-round draft choices last year, Trey Young, Kevin Herter, and then Amari Spellman. They've got another three first-round choices at this point at the moment, pick 8, pick 10, pick 17, plus three second-rounders, and you know, decently high second-rounders, 35, 41, and 44. 
There's been a lot of talk of the Hawks, you know, potentially looking to trade up package eight and 10 to move into that top three, top four. And now with an additional first round, the, the speculation that's what they're looking to do is heightening. Do you think that A, they are looking to move up or they'd be, you know, I also say people, oh, they're never going to take three first rounders, but they literally did that a year ago. So there's still that possibility, but is this <laughs> a more, make it more likely that they are interested in moving up into more of that pointy end of the draft into that top three top four maybe trading with with the knicks to get into that position or are they going to be happy with just acquiring pieces and knowing that outside of the top three and four you still can find useful players like we saw with kevin Herter last season yeah i think this draft is pretty flat so you know in a vacuum if you just ask me whether it'd be smart to trade up in this draft i would probably tell you no aside from going up to number one which isn't going to happen for anyone because zion is going to go number one um but with the Hawks and all this all this stockpile of assets, you know, you mentioned they have six picks now. Travis Schlenk, even even before they acquired the number five pick, the Hawks GM said that they did, uh, they did, they did not want um, five rookies, and now they have six picks. So they don't they don't want necessarily to bring in six rookies. They could have some stashes. They could still take all three first round picks, as you mentioned, they did that a year ago, and they have plenty of roster spots. At the same time, this does give them a lot of flexibility to the point where they can pretty much do anything. I think trading up has already been reported as a possibility by some of the best newsbreakers in the NBA, so that's certainly on the radar. I've not heard anything specific about that, but it wouldn't surprise anyone if they traded up at this point in time. Also, but for me, I think it's almost a situation where they could stay put. You, you can kind of take swings here, maybe take some more high upside guys because you have three three chances to sort of nail this pick. And uh, Travis Schleck's been very good at drafting in the middle of the first round in his first two drafts. So it wouldn't stun me if they stayed put either and just basically a lot of options are on the board here. Now, Brad, you do a lot of work you know, evaluating rookies and talking about the NBA draft. And you mentioned there having these extra picks gives you more of an ability to take a swing. With the moving on of Torian Prince, who'd held down the starting small forward position, there's a big hole there opening on the wing in Atlanta. So talking about high upside guys who showed, uh, I guess, who struggled in college, is Cam Reddish an option there at pick eight? I think so. Uh, I think the Hawks have been widely linked to Cam Reddish, even going back to like December, January. I've heard that they like him. I'm not sure that he's like as high on their board as some Hawks fans might think he, that he is because of all the reporting that's out there. But he's certainly a guy that, they, that they could take that would not surprise anyone. He was not great, as you mentioned, in college, but a very talented player and uh, has some upside. And I think with the way that uh, with, 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 with the way the Hawks play, he might be unlocked a little bit in Atlanta with a lot of space on the floor. Let him use his physical gifts a little bit more than he was able to at Duke when they didn't have much space on the floor. So, yeah, he would certainly be someone that I would keep in mind if you were trying to project what the Hawks might do at number eight overall. Just in terms of this squad, we know Trey Young, a rookie of the year finalist. There's John Collins who shows a bit, but is there anything else that this team say wouldn't even be looking at in the draft? Not that there's you know, elite point guard prospects who are going to be likely available at this point, but they wouldn't be looking for someone to you know, challenge Trey Young. But big men, you've got Collins there. Would they be looking for big men at these picks? Are they just looking for an acquisition of talent to just see what pans out with these you know, multiple selections? Yeah, I think, like you said, the only spot that they pretty much can't draft in the first round is point guard. And even then, uh, it's just pure point guards. If they want to take someone that can more, be more of a combo guy to play some two, that wouldn't be crazy. Um, but, you know, in, in the top ten, um, everything else is on the table. Because John Collins can play a little bit of center, a little bit of power forward, his versatility unlocks a lot of things. I would say if there was one position that, that they probably have to value a little bit more right now, it is true small forward. Um, they have a lot of wings on this roster still with Kent Bazemore. They have Kevin Herter. They have DeAndre Bembry. 
three. They have guys like that, but they're all kind of smaller options. They probably need to get somebody that has some some physical size, like a six eight, six nine kind of combo forward type. They really badly need. Uh, fortunately, a lot of those guys are going to be available in their range. Whether it be Reddish, Nazir Little, DeAndre Hunter, one of those guys could probably be looking to be in, in Atlanta in the future. But in general, best player available. It's not a point guard. It's kind of where they are right now. You talked about Travis Schlenk mentioning that they didn't want necessarily five rookies to come in. Does that open up that eight to 10 range for someone like Sekou Dumbaya? I, I don't know if he's going to come across necessarily, but a, a French player who obviously played this season in France, he's still young. I, th- I believe he's still 18. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, Brad, but does that open that up that option to select him, keep him in Europe for one more, one more season? And then yeah, that helps with that, yeah, not having another six rookies enter, enter into the roster heading into the year. It's possible. I actually haven't heard whether he's likely to come over or not. You know, it wouldn't blow me away if they brought him over. But just in general, I think stashes are almost more on the board for the Hawks than they would be for another team, especially in the second round. If they were to take three guys in the first round, I'd be pretty blown away if they use all three second round picks on guys who were slated to come over. And that's where you often see your you're more likely drafting stash prospects in the second round. But yeah, Deboya is kind of the only guy that they could take an 8 or 10 that probably would be a stash. The other international prospect is Gogo Batazzi, who's a little bit older, more established. I think he's going to be willing to come over right away. So if they wanted to take someone who, to, someone to stash in, in the first round, it's probably Demboya. But honestly, I, I, I'm not really sure what, where, his, where, where his head's at in terms of coming over because he is pretty raw and could probably use another year. But uh, he's the only guy that could be uh, sort of in that theory. Just uh, as a, an aside, I'm 100% behind the Hawks getting Goga and getting him uh, getting him over there, whether that's at 10 or 17. Or who knows? As you mentioned, this draft is so flat. There are so many different options. One last question for you, Brad, before I let you go. The Hawks, they've still got cap space. They've still got a lot of room, $82 million at the moment in guaranteed salary. Do you see them making another move where they can take on a guy like they did with Alan Crabb and acquire in that acquire assets mode to, to do that when a lot of the league is sort of pivoting away? Signaling the Hawks aren't going to be big free agent players. Do you think there's more of those deals in the works? It certainly could be. You know, I was confident they would they would, they would do at least one of those moves. They've already done it, which is kind of crazy here in uh, early to mid June. So They've already made one of those moves, but um, yeah, it's you know it wouldn't blow me away. They still have like twenty five million dollars in cap space, at least theoretically. So they're one of the only teams that's not looking to use that money on players necessarily. They're going to spend some money on players, but uh, yeah, it would not surprise me at all if one if one more of those moves is coming down the pipe because Travis Schlenk likes to accumulate assets, and uh, they already have a lot of them, but you can never have too many. Well, we're going to see how all this plays out in the next couple of weeks with the NBA draft on the horizon. The Hawks making a big move, which really tips their hat into what direction they're going. It's exciting to have these young guys. And Brad, you're going to have all that discussion about any moves the Hawks make and, of course, their NBA draft haul over on Locked On Hawks. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. Oh, it's my pleasure as always. Uh, Always happy to do it. Today's show is brought to you in part by Hotels.com. Don't hate like your friend's trip. Book your own with Hotels.com and get rewarded basically everywhere. And it's also brought to you by Grip6 Belts. Ultra lightweight belts with no holes, no flap, and a great Father's Day gift. Go to Grip6.com slash lock. That's Grip, the number 6.com slash lock, L-O-C-K-E. Now we look at the other side of that trade as we bring in one of the hosts of the Locked On Nets podcast, Josh Bass, is here. As we talked about with Brad Rowland earlier, the uh, the Brooklyn Nets executed executing this trade in agreement, uh, not fully executed yet, with the Atlanta Hawks, where Alan Crabb and a couple of first-round draft choices go to Atlanta. But Josh, this trade acquiring Torian Prince, like he is someone who is, I guess, a player, a rotation player, perhaps a starter. But the big deal to me here with Brooklyn, and that's you know, well reported right across the NBA, is that this is uh, clearly signaling the intentions of Brooklyn in terms of the upcoming free agency. Atlanta's made their intentions pretty clear, asset accumulations. But this, Josh, is uh, the, the Nets really going for things, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Josh. And it's funny because if you look at last year at this time with the uh, 
the trade with Denver, the Nets were actually in Atlanta's position asset accumulation mode. And Sean Marks has really looked to accelerate the process, obviously getting Torian Prince, a nice role player with some uh, future upside should be helpful, but giving up two first round picks to get rid of Alan Crabb's contract. It's clear that the Nets want to be in position uh, to get a guy like Kyrie Irving and hopefully pair him with whether that's retaining D'Angelo Russell, KD, uh, it could be a, a long shot like Kawhi, someone that can really up their um, kind of potential as a team just from a mid-playoff uh, team that can grow nicely together as a five or six seed to a team that can really contend to the conference finals and hopefully beyond. You mentioned that D'Angelo Russell situation. We've heard all the reports of Kyrie. Actually, let's talk about Kyrie first. That is gaining a ton of steam. There was lots of reports that you know, Kyrie wanted to go to New York. Of course, maybe that, that was initially thought to be the Knicks, but now it is appearing, Josh, that it, it, the Nets are you know, really locked in. We've had reports from numerous you know, well-respected reporters that that interest is, in fact, legitimate. Do you think, do you, how, oh, okay, I guess not, you can't know for sure how likely this is, but it is appearing that this is a legitimate possibility that Kyrie suits up for Brooklyn next season. Yeah, no, it's definitely gaining momentum. And with three weeks before free agency, a lot can certainly change. I mean, three weeks ago, no one was really talking about the Nets as a primary contender. But I'd be curious to hear what you think. But it just seems with all the negative publicity, Boston has completely um, written him off and vice versa. It really seems like it's going to be the the Nets is prim- the primary contender, the Knicks, maybe the Lakers if he wants to reunite with LeBron. But, you know, when Woj says something, you have to take it with – um, a lot of of kind of sincerity and know that it's a very likely possibility because he's not just going to throw that out there. So, you know, if I had to bet, I'd, I'd say Kyrie Irving will be will be a net when things are announced on uh, June 30th. It is going to be really interesting. I do agree with you. It does appear like Kyrie is not going to be returning to Boston and the Nets do appear like they are yeah, the number one suitor at this point. It would make you know, a lot of sense for him from a basketball perspective, a team on the up and up. But this trade, we, we talk about this and opening up potential you know for two max slots here but of course that would probably mean that D'Angelo Russell's not going to remain with this squad do you think that this trade with Atlanta opening up this extra cap space by getting rid of Alan Crabb's contract um, it not only shows an indication that at least one big name free agent's coming but do you think that it means that they're looking at perhaps two guys with a decent indication they're coming and do you think it's more or less likely that D'Angelo Russell returns? Yeah, I mean, w- with this trade, you have to think that it's um, they're gearing up for two. Whether so, whether that be I, either Kyrie or D'Angelo, in some cases, it's been talked about that both of them would still be on the team. But let's assume one of them plus a swing guy, whether that's uh, a real megastar like KD, in which case they'd have to um, offload some of their value contracts. Whether that be Joe Harris, Spencer Dinwiddie, and obviously there'd be markets for both those guys. Or even if it's a Tobias Harris type, you know, I there's no way that they're making this trade if they don't have aspirations for getting two stars because worst case you'd hold on to um, these picks come draft night and then see what could happen. Maybe they were worried about other teams using Atlanta's cap space and that there weren't many teams like Atlanta that could really um, take a bad contract like Alan Crabb. I wish they had a bit more flexibility with things, stayed more nimble, maybe stretch Alan Crabb depending on what free agents they thought they were going to get. But, you know, in terms of the D'Angelo Russell thing, it has to uh, pretend that it's not the best situation for, for it's not the best kind of scenario right now for him to stay with the Nets, given that they're making they're actually making moves to position themselves for guys like Kyrie, who obviously has a lot more ties to the bigger free agents than D'Lo. 
personally, I'd like them to keep D'Lo just because if it's either him or Kyrie, D'Lo uh, is a guy that's really bought into the culture, clearly an inferior player to Kyrie, but someone that's younger and not going to demand the same contract, most likely as a Kyrie Irving, and gives you some more flexibility when building out the rest of your roster, as opposed to hitching your wagon uh, in a guy like Kyrie, who is shown to be, uh, while extremely talented and a star-level player, also someone who's very mercurial and can easily derail your team as well. With the way things currently stand, for them to get to this almost $68 million in cap space, they would have to renounce D'Angelo Russell's $21 million cap hold. So that's why I think, yeah, that 67 almost perfectly aligns with getting two max guys to come in and to get that space outside of any trades, as you mentioned, you're trading away you know, Dinwiddie or trading away yeah, Joe Harris, but even then, to find that extra $21 million that, that Russell's cap hold does account for is maybe a tough thing, and you'd, you wouldn't think that D'Angelo is signing for less than that $21 million per season anyway, so it's not like, yeah, we could just sign him early on and get him at you know, four years, 44. Like, that's not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. So it is, I agree with you, looking less likely that Russell does return with these moves and with this thought process here, opening up that almost perfect amount for that two big guys to come in, whether it is KD or Kyrie, Kawhi, you know, Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler, these sort of guys in uh, options there at 30, 30 plus million dollars per season to come in there. So there is going to be a real you know, changing of the guard here in Brooklyn or a change in approach, as you mentioned, acquiring assets sets at this time last season. Now they're looking to push, build on this playoff spot and really push into that upper echelon of the Eastern Conference. It's going to be a fascinating offseason for the Brooklyn Nets. Josh is going to have that all covered for you over on Locked on Nets. Thanks for jumping on Locked on NBA with me. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Josh. And that will do it for another episode of Locked On NBA. Follow me on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball and follow the network at Locked On NBA Net on both Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks to our sponsors again for today, Hotels.com and Grip6 Belt. And make sure you are subscribing to this podcast, Locked On NBA. You can follow it over by using the Himalaya podcast app, brand new podcast app. Download that and follow Locked On NBA. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and on Spotify. Make sure you give us a review and a five-star rating. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.